Welcome to Supply Chain Now, the voice of global supply chain. Supply Chain Now focuses on the best in the business for our worldwide audience, the people, the technologies, the best practices, and today's critical issues, the challenges, and opportunities. Stay tuned to hear from those making global business happen right here on Supply Chain Now. Hey, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone, wherever you are. Scott Luton and Kevin O. Jackson with you here on Supply Chain Now. Welcome to today's show. Kevin, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing great. It's happy Friday Eve. <laughs> <laughs> happy Friday Eve. Happy month of February, wherever all of our listeners are. And most importantly, folks, we got a great show teed up today, right? There's a reason why Kevin's over there smiling and he's giddy. we got a great show. We're going to be diving into a critical component of the global economy and worldwide industry, but it's one part of global business that I bet a lot of folks don't know much about. We're going to be diving into the pharmaceutical industry, and we're going to be doing so with a guest that spent years in global leadership roles in that industry, making it happen. So stay tuned for an informative and entertaining conversation here. Kevin, should be a great show, huh? You know, pharmaceuticals have been uh, sort of top of my list you know, for a lot of reasons, <laughs> Don't go there. (laughs) (laughs) You've got a list. We all have a list (laughs) to help us keep moving forward. Yeah, caffeine is my pharmaceutical of choice. Ah, (laughs) we're getting the goods on Evan. But folks, today's episode is presented in partnership with our friends at Microsoft, who's doing some pretty cool things out in the industry, helping to move us all forward successfully. More on that to come. But with that said, I want to introduce our featured guest today, a dear friend, frankly. We really enjoyed his previous appearances with us here on Supply Chain Now. Our guest has a long, successful track record when it comes to planning, operations, leadership, and more. He has served in senior leadership positions with companies such as Leo Pharma, Pfizer, Fusion Ops, Baxter, and Wyeth, to name a few. In fact, he holds a bachelor's degree in microbiology from the University of Maryland. Go Terps. Yes. He also has conducted graduate studies in biochemistry at Johns Hopkins. Man, we're pleased to welcome repeat guest and friend, Alan Jacques, industry thought leader with Canaxis. Alan, how you doing? I'm doing great, Scott. Great to be with you and Kevin again. Oh, it's so great to have you. Now, Kevin, I knew Alan was highfalutin already, (laughs) but I didn't know about these academic pursuits. Goodness gracious, Alan, I didn't think you'd get any smarter and you'd go surprising me here, huh? Yeah, well, what I knew back in those days has long disappeared. So <laughs> I don't believe that. I'm not as smart as I was uh, when I was doing my degrees. Oh, I don't believe it for a minute. But I used to be a pilot, but I forgot it. <laughs> I wouldn't near any airplane controls today. <laughs> All right, but here's the deal. Here's the upfront contract. I'm asking Alan and Kevin. You know, I'm the slow, non-technical one, so you are going to have to bring the conversation down to the right altitude and help me keep along with y'all two gurus, okay? So Absolutely. Before we dive into all things pharmaceutical, Alan and Kevin, I want to get to know Alan just a little bit better. I got a couple of questions here. So Alan, you grew up on a farm with a hundred cows. So I want to ask you, what's one life lesson from that upbringing that sticks with you here today? Well, the thing you learn at a very young age is when you're walking around, always be looking down. (laughs) When you ever wonder why a farmer is looking down, it's because they're trying to avoid stepping on something. Right. And I'll tell you, 
that's a great business leadership lesson. We got to be careful what we step into and pick and choose our battles, so to speak. Kevin, you were about to add something. Yeah, I thought people looking at their smartphones. <laughs> oh, no, we're, we're looking down and avoiding what we step into, as Alan put it. Here's a second thing that I picked up earlier. So, Alan, I didn't realize you had a big dream growing up of playing professional basketball. So I want to ask you, what was one of your role models back in the day that you grew up idolizing that really nurtured that dream of yours? Yeah, there's so many, Scott. And I'm old enough to remember a lot of players (laughs) that you may never have heard of. Okay. But the one I always loved watch was uh, Tim Duncan. Um, I loved the bank shot. I loved, you know, kissing the glass. And I loved his demeanor. I mean, he never got excited about anything. He just went out there and played. And he was a fantastic player. Oh, you definitely. Hall of Famer and a great, great athlete to watch. So well said. Yeah. So, Kevin, why don't you talk about Tim Duncan before I let out one of your cool secrets? Well, actually, what popped into my mind wasn't Tim Duncan, but when you said, you know, John Hopkins, the first thing that popped in my mind was my very first professional basketball game, and I saw Wes okay. Unsell play for the Baltimore Bullets. <laughs> <laughs> Man. I remember him. I remember him very well. Rebounder. Yeah. He went on to coach, and I think he had a decent coaching career as well. So, about that. (laughs) Well, speaking of name dropping, Alan, I shared this with you pre show, but Kevin (laughs) played pickup games with an NBA Hall of Famer, David the Admiral Robinson. Kevin, is that right? Yes, absolutely. Actually, we were both at the Naval Academy during the same time. He was junior to me but not on the basketball court. <laughs> when, he, when, he, when he came there, he, I mean, of course, he was a star at Naval Academy, but the question was, you know, would he get so tall that he wouldn't be able to go into the Navy? He wanted to fly, and I always wondered if he'd even become a pro basketball player or not, but I tell you, he's not only an excellent player, but he's a awesome person. And I really enjoyed working, yeah. playing with him and calling him a friend. And in fact, years later, mm. I went down to San Antonio for a business trip and got to see him again. So, you know, he's wow. one that I really look up to in many ways. <laughs> so, Alan, i give you a chance. You and I both were kind of nodding as Kevin was describing all of that and rubbing elbows with the Hall of Famer. Your thoughts on David Robinson, Alan? Well, I envy you, Kevin, having (laughs) met him and even played with him. I think if I was playing one-on-one with David Robinson, I would just hand him the ball. (laughs) (laughs) Same, same. All right. Well, as much as I'd love to dive more into all things basketball and farms and and get to know you even better, Alan, but again, great to have you back. We really enjoyed your previous appearances. For context, as we got to get into the conversation, we're all here and talk about a really important industry. Mm -hmm. For context, I want to make sure folks connect the dots and understand what you and the Canaxis team do. Let's start there. Level set with us a little bit, Alan. Sure. So Conexus is a end-to-end supply chain planning, supply chain management solution that starts from forecasting demand, runs through distribution requirements planning, gets very deeply into manufacturing capacity and capacity balancing, all the way to what we would call MRP or procurement. The beauty of it is it's all on one platform. So that means that you can do 
very fast what-if simulations. If there's an issue, you can identify the root cause quickly, and then you can collaborate across a vast network to resolve the issue. So collaboration is key, especially in a large company across many geographies. And we're in all the verticals, automotive, high-tech, CPG, my vertical, life sciences, that's where we're the strongest. And it's all the same platform for all those companies, all those industries. Love it. Impressive. Previously, we've enjoyed talking about the symphony, the supply chain symphony that you and the team are conducting over at Canaxis. I had a lot of orchestrating. fun. Orchestrating. Yes, orchestrating. That's the new word I was looking for. <laughs> Kevin, when you hear that and that orchestration across mm-hmm. global supply chain that Alan and the Canaxis team are doing, of course, Microsoft plays a role in a lot of that as well. What comes to your brain? Do you picture that conductor with the baton leading that supply chain orchestra, Kevin? Well, actually, when I, I think about that and the fact that they're in so many different industries, it's the thing that pops through my mind is the learning, the shortcuts, or the best practices that you can take maybe from automotive and put it into life science, or from distribution and then put it into life science or automotive. When you are, you know, sort of at the top looking at all these different business models and seeing the maybe shortcomings and failings in one, and you can basically get the answer from another. And I think that's mm. that's powerful. That's extremely powerful. And I think that's what Canaxis actually brings to their customers and clients. Mm. Mm-hmm. Excellent point. You know, regularly, almost without fail, Alan and Kevin, as we out, go out and meet kind of between the shows, mm-hmm. between the conversations with supply chain leaders in every kind of industry, we regularly hear the value of bringing in a group of leaders from all sorts of sectors, all sorts of functional areas. And that cross-functional, cross-industry, cross-sector information sharing is so powerful. And it can really move mountains, Kevin. Alan, see you nodding your head. You tend to agree, huh? Oh, absolutely. I even have a good example, Kevin. Uh, okay. We develop functionality around expiry, expiration dating, shelf life uh-huh. for the pharmaceutical industry. And now we have a high-tech semiconductor company who wants to use that functionality. So it is really cross-fertilization. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Talk about a good industry to be in. The man at semiconductor industry, goodness gracious, there's some explosive growth there. So let's talk about the pharmaceutical industry, though. And I think what's important for this conversation, especially our listeners all around the globe out there, is I want to go back in time because, Alan, you've spent significant time doing big things in industry. And as we were trying to put a a show together to help our audience understand things. You're one of the first names that popped in my brain. So as we try to understand and better understand your leadership experience in a pharmaceutical world, you know, including major pharma players like Baxter and Wyeth and Pfizer, and I mentioned some of those in the front end, and the different functional areas you've played a role from supply chain, manufacturing, tech ops, and more. You know, from what you've seen and done, Alan, what are a couple of really unique elements to the global pharmaceutical industry? You know, what are some things that might surprise some of our audience members? Yeah. In the pharmaceutical industry, I've grown up believing that the complexity is almost all on the manufacturing side. Okay. Uh, the complexity, the cost, and the lead times. It's a very highly regulated industry. It's not just the FDA. There are FDAs all around the world. And so you have a lot of regulatory constraints. And so you can't just change a product and you know to improve the yield or you know the quality or whatever. 
when you want to make a change, you have to get approval all around the world to make that change. And of course, the timing is different everywhere. So that becomes a complexity that you have to live with Mm. and you have to manage it, especially in supply chain planning. The other thing I would say is lead times are long and it's not the manufacturing lead times, it's really the quality lead times. So I'll give you an example. If you make an active ingredient, a biologic that we call drug substance, one of the quality tests takes 28 days before it's done. So that means that you cannot release that drug substance for 28 days. Now, of course, things don't happen perfectly. So the typical lead time is probably a couple of months. And then you put product into a syringe or a vial, then you have a sterility test. It's a minimum of 14 days. And so average lead times are more like 30 to 45 days. So really lead times are long. Lead time variability is high. And that's what you have to live with. So I've always felt that if you want to run a good pharma supply chain, focus on lead times and getting them down as close to those 28 days and 14 days as you can. Man, Kevin, I've got a follow-up question, but I'll give you a chance to respond to that, to what the picture Alan's already painted there. Your thoughts, Kevin? Yeah, I guess when you're talking about lead times, that means you have a strong dependence on your partners across your ecosystem as well because they probably have similar lead times. And it takes a lot of Uh communication so that they, you know, you can manage that. So the thing that comes to mind to me is communication across that ecosystem. How do you manage this lead time through communicating with your partners? Well, some of the lead time you see in the industry is is because of communication. So as you can imagine, especially in the older days, mm-hmm. there were a lot of Excel spreadsheets, a lot of <laughs> email, you know, phone calls, things like that. So sometimes I had a boss once that described it like a dinosaur. Mm-hmm. You step on its tail and three months later it says out. <laughs> and sometimes when you look at, you know, something happens in your supply chain and just the communication lead time to get that message everywhere where it needed to be would take, you know, quite a long time and there'd be a lot of latency. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that just adds to the physical lead times that I was describing. You know what you're saying, that's your information and data supply chain, which is always critical that many people don't think about. When they think about supply chain, it seems to be focused on the physical thing. But I really like the way you you brought up that information supply chain can also cause, you know, lead times. Yes. That's a great point. And it reminds me, and I cannot remember the name of the company, but it's a food company. And but he had this leader, the uh-huh. CEO that really helped it grow to being a dominant player it is today, had a regular mantra that kind of touches on what you are both talking about. And he would say, give me good news fast, but give me bad news faster. <laughs> yes. Right? So you're not like that dinosaur yes. that waits you know, three weeks after someone steps on the tail. Okay. What a quick question. I want to get it more into, I mean, you've already laid kind of a basis for why it takes so long for new drugs to be launched and come to market. We're going to touch more on that in just a second, but I want to go back to you now as Alan, you've been involved in what y'all do in a variety of different industries. Do you almost feel like you are liberated when you come out of pharmaceutical within that tight regulatory environment, no matter where you are in the world, and you go to a different sector, you have a lot less regulation and you can, you're much freer to drive change and try new ideas. Is that kind of liberating for folks that come out of pharmaceutical into other industries? Well, 
Not really. Why? <laughs> because other industries have their own complexities, and they're not complexities I grew up with. So it takes me a while to get my head around it. And some industries like aerospace yeah. yes. are just as regulated, if not more regulated, than we are in life sciences. So we always like to think in life sciences that we're special and you know we have the most to deal with. But as you get exposed to other industries, you realize... You know, there are other complexities that we never <laughs> dreamed of or imagined. So there might be some out there that where I would feel liberated, but, you know, <laughs> not many. Alan's keeping it real. Yeah. With it. The thing that jumped to my mind was tracking boats at Boeing, right? <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So let's get into switching gears a little bit here and kind of going back to some of the uniqueness of the pharmaceutical industry that you were touching on earlier, Alan. So according to McKinsey, over the past decade, at least, it takes 12 years on average, just on average, for a new drug to be officially launched. So you've already mentioned some of the quality testing and some of the lead times involved there and a few other aspects. But what else? When you think of the factors that impact that long time frame, what else have we not mentioned? Yeah, well, I don't know where the clock starts ticking in that 12 years in the McKinsey study, but I would imagine it starts in drug discovery. So obviously, there's a lot of lab work, bench work done in just identifying molecules that could treat a certain indication or a certain disease. And so that takes a long time. That can take years. And it's quite expensive, you know, a lot of manpower, a lot of hit or miss a lot of guesswork and all that. I worked in a lab for quite a while, so I know what that's like to be doing that. But once you've identified a candidate, once you have confidence that this molecule could work, and it could be a small molecule, it could be a monoclonal antibody, a very large molecule, but and anything in between. Once you've identified something that you believe will work, and I think we're much better at that now than we were you know, decades ago, then you have to get into your clinical studies. Hmm. And the clinical studies are a big chunk of that time. And there are three phases of clinical studies. There's phase one, where you're testing a product primarily for safety. Then there's phase two studies, where you're looking primarily at what we call efficacy. You know, does the molecule work? So you're testing it in humans. Okay to make sure that you get the effect that, mm-hmm. that you expect. And then you have phase three, which we call our pivotal studies. And that's where you have a larger population and you actually, you know the dose, you know the population, you have placebo, you have active, you might be comparing it to another drug. Mm. But that's when you have a full-fledged clinical trial across many geographies, many ethnicities, just to generate the data that you'll need to get that product approved. Now, Depending on the product, so you can imagine an oncology product, that phase three study may span several years. Maybe for other products, it could be six months to a year. But that phase three is your key study and your most expensive study as far as what you're investing in. And you can imagine that, you know, if something doesn't make it through phase one, you want to kill it right away. Right. And same thing with phase two. So if you look at what goes into clinical studies... And what comes out as an approved product, the hit rate is less than 10%. So, and the typical product, when you look at the full cost, it's the best part of a a billion dollars. It may even be higher than that now. So you're spending a lot of money with a very low hit ratio. And, you know, but once you get a product approved, then obviously, you know, that's the best (laughs) news you could ever get in the formal industry. I wanted to pull the string a little bit on the first phase, that research phase. 
you know, today, you know, artificial intelligence is on the tip of everyone's tongue and wondering how that's going to affect my industry. And, you know, recently you were hearing about how artificial intelligence is helping the researchers to test different molecules and how they react to other molecules and to simulate enzymes and antibodies before they even go out of the lab. All this is done in a computer somewhere. My question is, is that really, I guess, accelerating drugs or is it just making it more dangerous because we're trusting artificial intelligence instead of human intelligence? Yeah, I definitely don't think it's dangerous. Mm -hmm. I think the impact of that will be because you're looking at molecular structures, you're looking at, you know, parts of the cell mm -hmm. or body that they're going to interact with. And you're able to project, I think, better what that interaction will be like. So I have to believe that that's going to increase this hit ratio. So before you go into a clinical study, you have a higher level of confidence of what will make it. Now, I'm not in R&D, so... <laughs> But I definitely believe it will help us in the science of, you know, putting a drug in S discovery into clinical. Mm. Oh, that's, that's great. It's fascinating taking a peek into the pharmaceutical industry and just the phases and the lead time, all development, all of that work you described, that high-end, research-driven, data-driven, I was going to say doctoral activity-driven, that's not the phrase <laughs> I'm looking for, highfalutin activity-driven, I'll say. And then about 10% of the time, you're able to come up with a drug that's safe, it's effective, it works, and then we launch it to the market. So, Alan, I'm assuming you want to fail and fail really fast. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of times, unfortunately, that doesn't happen until you're in your phase three study. Yeah. Mm. That's a study that's big enough to really tell you with confidence, you know, what your drug is going to do. Gotcha. All right. And now back to Kevin. Kevin, you're talking about AI. Mm -hmm. That's a great segue. I had to get one more question in before we went into digital transformation and talk more about pharmaceutical supply chain, which is really where I think, Alan, if I've got it right, in supply chain, manufacturing, the operational side, that's where the bulk of your pharmaceutical industry experience was in. Is that right? Correct. So when you think about digital transformation in the pharmaceutical supply chain, I want some of your observations there. And if you would, you know, think about it kind of twofold. You know, how the industry is already leveraging different aspects of digital transformation because, you know, it's everywhere. It's been everywhere for years now. And then maybe some of the art of the possible of maybe what you would expect to see in the months and years ahead. Your thoughts there, Alan? So I have to go back a little bit in the history. So I've been around, you know, for several decades in the industry. Early in my career, we would kill for data, you know, just to know what the inventory of a product was in the country or what was happening in manufacturing. We just did not have the connectivity. I remember a big milestone is when we went from monthly data from our marketing affiliates around the world to weekly data. That was like a big deal. <laughs> and, and so we were starving for data. And, you know, there was some cool stuff even back in the late 90s. We had statistical forecasting. We had optimizers. We had the first advanced planning solutions. They were all really cool technology, but we just couldn't get the data to feed the beast. Yeah. Wow. So a lot of those efforts kind of fell apart because of that. And so every conference I went to until about five years ago, there was always a track with at least six talks that talked about end-to-end -end visibility. Okay. You know, 
how do you achieve end-to-end visibility just within your own company? So obviously, we've come a long ways Mm -hmm. over the years with ERP systems, with Industry 4.0. I mean, the amount of data we're getting out of a facility to optimize manufacturing operations and processes. I think the average U.S. manufacturing site generates, I think it's 1.3 petabytes of data every day. Wow. I think that's the number. So it's, it's incredible. And then obviously with a digital twin of your supply chain, you know, end-to-end visibility should now be a given. So we shouldn't be able to achieve a digital twin of your full enterprise. And then obviously put the planning functionality, you know, the transparency so that whenever an issue happens in the supply chain, you immediately see the impact everywhere. Mm. Early in my career in Pfizer, when I took over this, so I had the global planning group for Pfizer. Okay. We had an active ingredient, which we call an API. Mm-hmm. And we had shipped like 10 drums of it from Puerto Rico to China. And when they opened the drums, there was an issue with the API that we call caking. It's like a white powder but somehow moisture or something had gotten into the drums. And so it had solidified or came. Mm. And so we had to discard, you know, that full shipment. Issue was that API was for a product that in China alone was a $1 billion product. Wow. Goodness gracious. I could tell you the name of the product. I'm not sure I should do that. (laughs) So you can imagine the email traffic that exploded after that. And my team had to determine you know, what are we going to do about it? It took us a week to figure that out. It took us a week to get inventories from all around the world, you know, put that together, look at what we could do at the manufacturing site and all that. And at the end of that week, we discovered, well, we had inventory in Japan, we could ship to China, everything was good, no stockouts, no issues, no loss of revenue. But the meetings, the phone calls, the email traffic (laughs) and all of that that happened during that week was unbelievable. Today, you know, with a digital supply chain, I could have gotten that answer in minutes. So that's for me, you know, the power of a digital twin and the power of the technology we have today. Oh, I got a thousand questions, Alan. I love that example and your experiences there. But Kevin, what a great (laughs) comparison and contrasting of how business was done then for big successful companies, right? They were probably leveraging a lot of the modern technologies of that time to what we can do today, arguably right in the palm of our hand with our phone, right? Yeah. Kevin, your thoughts? Well, the first thing that popped to my mind was, why didn't you have a sensor in that barrel so that you can measure the moisture? Today, (laughs) you could do that. So you probably know there's too much moisture coming into the barrel, you know, before the ship left port. Uh, You wouldn't have to wait until it got to uh, dock in China. So, you know, the visibility is more than just what you can see in the port. It's about the entire trip that you can do. And you can monitor that on your your smartphone. And that's what you really need to think about when you are transforming your supply chain. You know, it's not just the normal Mm. points of presence, so to speak that you can check your product. You can check it every day, all day, (laughs) every second. So true. Also, one of the things that came to my mind, and I loved how you said that back then, Alan, you would kill for data and how it was a big thing to move from, I think you put it, from monthly to weekly 
data cadences and cycles. Kevin, there's no shortage. If there's anything, as Alan pointed out with the 1.3 petabytes, there is no shortage of data, but it's what is the organization's capability and ability to execute and really leverage all of this data that they have. It's one of the questions of our time. Isn't it right, Kevin? Yeah. How do you get insights from that data? It's great that you have all this data, but what does it mean? (laughs) And that's the challenge today. How does that data affect the activities that you have to conduct as part of your business workflow? Excellent point. And now I want to pose that back to you because we talk a lot here at Supply Chain Now and Digital Transformers all the time about you know, visibility more and more isn't good enough. To Kevin's point, we got to have the insights. We got to have the solutions. We got to have the outcomes with what we do with visibility and data and technology. Your thoughts around that, Alan? Yeah. So we call that transparency. So you're exactly right. Visibility isn't enough. You mm-hmm. know, I know my shit got blocked in the Panama Canal or right. the Red Sea or whatever. So that's visibility, but I need to know what that means yeah. to my supply chain, what that means to my customers. So, you know, if I lose a batch of something at a manufacturing site in one of my pharma plants, I need to be able to see immediately, well, that's going to impact Germany, Austria, and Denmark, you know, Mm -hmm. in about six months. And, And then I need to start working with them on solutions on, you know, what we could do about it. And, you know, and I need to be able to do that quickly. The longer it takes me to do that, the less relevant my decision is going to like you said i want to know bad news faster (laughs) but and then i want to know what to do about it faster so i need to be able to simulate and what if you know until i find that solution excellent point and alan you had a little fun earlier alan and kevin talking about the cow farm that Mm -hmm. alan grew up in hunter cows it's a big cow farm at least in my book and we had a little fun with not being able to not step in it right but you know you also mentioned the scenario planning and the simulations and leveraging technology to take that to all new levels so you don't step in certain things because you've already kind of worked through a wide variety of scenarios kevin you're kind of laughing it's really important in it yeah i think data and insight from that data allow you to foresee the future, right? And that's really what you what you want to do. You need to work in the future. That's Are right. you a time traveler, Alan? <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. That's right. Not yet. All right. So, Alan, I really appreciate you sharing with our audience a variety of aspects of what goes on in the pharmaceutical industry from some of the very true, you know, unique constraints. Because, you know, every industry will say, well, we're different and we're different, this, that, and the other. But truly, there are some very unique elements to what goes on to producing the drugs and the sciences that really help all of us live a better life. And equally as much, I love your walk through kind of how supply chain was done back in the day. And still, a lot of the important themes and abilities, a lot of those are the same. We can just act on them so much better here today. That's the true art of the possible. Am I right, Alan? Mm Mm-hmm. But it oftentimes comes down to leadership. And that's where I want to kind of, as we start to wrap today's interview, that's where I want to focus in on. So, Alan, we're going to have you back and we're going to get all those stories and you'll even be able to name those drugs. (laughs) You know, we'll we'll get all the lawyers to have our back, right? There's so much, I bet there's so many stories. You You ought to write a book soon about your industry experience, but leadership. So two-part question. And Kevin, you're not getting off the hook. I want you to answer these questions too. I'm looking forward to your perspective here as well. So Alan, when you think of 
timeless leadership best practices that you wish more folks, more organizations, more business leaders would embrace today? What's one of those things that comes to your mind? You know, I've spent time in manufacturing. I've spent time with major CapEx projects, you know, Mm -hmm. and then most of my time in supply chain. What I really like comes from the manufacturing world, but it can be applied anywhere. That's what we call Gemba walks. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you're familiar with that expression. I'm sure everyone listening in knows that expression. But a Gemba walk is basically when you walk the floor. So in a manufacturing environment, it's basically getting out there, walking the floor, not just to wave to people and, you know, say hi, but to observe operations, you know, like an industrial engineer, observe operations, see what's happening on the floor. I remember in one manufacturing site, I used to walk by this piece of equipment every day. It was an early robotic that we were using. And I think, you know, one time out of 50 that I walked by, it was actually working. (laughs) (laughs) And and so you you see something like that and you go, you know, something's wrong here. You know, we obviously invested quite a bit of money in this piece of equipment. And I've seen like syringe filling lines uh, that are down and not operating. And I remember I had a boss once, he used to go through warehouses and look at the FedEx shipments, the overnight shipments, you know, these pallets of materials sitting in a warehouse. And he'd run his finger across the top of the pallet and see how much dust it collected. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so gamble walks are really helpful. And the way I applied that in supply chain was, so I had an organization of over 50 people. Mm -hmm. But on a regular basis, I would sit down and have my planners, each of my planners walk me through their supply chain. Mm. You know, I do that individually with all of them. You know, we'd have an hour, you know, I'd want to see metrics, you know, how the product's performing, what the issues are, manufacturing bottlenecks, inventory was a big one. How are we doing on inventory? You know, where do we have opportunities? But basically I would give them a chance to walk me through their supply chain. And then, you know, I was the annoying one (laughs) who asked a lot of questions. But that's one way I applied that, you know, in in the supply chain world, the planning world. And that's how we get better. I love that example. Kevin, if I may continue with this gimbal walk, best practice that Alan shared before you share. You know, I've been in and out of over 300 plants in my career. And it's one of my favorite things to do is go to the gimbal, go to where the value is created and interact with those workers that are truly experts in their processes. Those are some of my favorite conversations to have. Yeah. The good news here, especially to all of you audience members out there, the good news is you can apply that notion, that powerful approach, no matter what industry you're in. I'll tell you one recent example. I had dinner the other night with a dear family member of mine. He spent decades doing big things in the broadcast and media space. In fact, he's a member of the Georgia Broadcasters Hall of Fame. How about that? Wow. And he shared as we were enjoying a delicious meal, he shared with me that every single day, as he was the general manager of this successful media organization, he would walk every part of that studio, of the offices, and talk to every single person to see how their day's going, what they're up to. That was a big part of his management and leadership philosophy. Mm. And that's a version of a gimbal walk, yeah. just applied to a different industry. And it's such a wonderful leadership arrow to put in your quiver to no matter what sector you may be leading or managing or just being a part of. Kevin, weigh in on what we heard there from Alan. Well, first of all, I mean, it, call it management by walking around, MWA. I remember that when I was going to school. Uh, there we go. But in the military, I was in the Navy. You know, I was too young to really appreciate our chiefs in the Navy, right? I was a young 
officer of the Naval Academy thought I know everything. But yeah. it was the chiefs in the Navy that really executed that MWA, that management by walking around, because they were always wherever things were happening, they were there. They were watching the non-rateds and the lower-ranked people understanding what they were doing. But they were also interacting with the senior officers and understanding what they were doing. And just by walking around, they could see issues before they became crisis, right? They could sort of visualize solutions before they were even asked for to do that. So the chiefs in the Navy were yep. experts at management by walking around. I love that. Blessed are the chiefs. I think that was one of the Beatitudes, I think. I'm not, I'm not mistaken. We'll see. We'll have to look it up. Were you saying that last Sunday night? <laughs> oh, that's a good Super Bowl Ooh. reference there. I love that, Alan. <laughs> Got that one. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. All right. I wish we had a couple more hours with Alan and Kevin here, but Alan, just a couple more questions for you. I want to stick with leadership for a second. You know, I think, you know, leadership is always relevant, always relevant. And I think more and more, especially now, I think of lip service leadership, mm. right? Who's got time for lip service leadership? No one does, right? Especially your people out there in organizations. So for folks that are tuned in and listening to us and are watching us right now, Alan and Kevin, and they want to truly hone their leadership skills and be someone that folks respect, that gets stuff done, that empowers their team, takes organizations to new heights. So as they're honing their leadership skills, what's one piece of advice that you'd offer based on all your success in your career, Alan? Well, as a leader, I think the most valuable thing that you could ever have is experience from the lowest levels of the corporation. Nobody understands manufacturing better than someone who's worked on the shop floor. No one understands forecasting better than a demand planner. No, no one understands you know, manufacturing scheduling better than a scheduler. So I think, so wherever you are in supply chain or maybe other parts of a company, don't be anxious to get out of your role. The role you're in is giving you experience that will benefit you years down the road. My advice would be that whatever you're doing, be the best. Be the best yeah. at what you're doing. Look for ways to innovate it incrementally or maybe more and be able to tell a story about what you're doing. Fact-based, clear, concise. And if you can do that and you can be really good at what you're doing, you will get noticed. And you will get a seat at the table and you will get opportunities to be promoted. I didn't start my career off, you know, in supply chain saying someday I want to be the VP of planning or the VP of logistics or whatever. I'm not saying you should not be ambitious at all, but I didn't spend my time thinking about that. I just was so fascinated by what I was doing and interested and got to do some really cool things and new things. And that got noticed and then opportunities came along. And then, you know, basically I jumped at opportunities, but I didn't go in saying, you know, three years from now, I want to be in this position. <laughs> so don't spend your time thinking about yeah. the future, you know, really focus on the present and really focus on making whatever you're doing better so that several years down the road, you'll look back and you won't recognize the way you used to do it. Yeah, that's great. Alan, what a wonderful, practical, been there, done that advice to all of our listeners, no matter where they are in their journey out there. Kevin, same question to you. What would you advise folks on as they look to hone their leadership skills? The best advice I ever learned as I try to become a leader was kind of simple. Listen more than you talk because you learn so much more when you keep your mouth shut. 
and you can sort of understand the experience of others by listening to them relate that experience. And that in and of itself made me a a better leader. So that's what I would tell my younger self. (laughs) I love that. Listen more than you talk. Timeless advice there too. I would just add to what Alan and Kevin have eloquently shared. Volunteer, volunteer, Mm. volunteer. That's how you can gain some of those experiences and be a part of change, innovation, and develop a wide variety of professional skills, right? Certainly, we can't get enough volunteers out there in industry, and that's a great opportunity to stand out and gain what you need to advance. Yeah. Okay. Alan and Kevin, man, what a great conversation. I wish we had a lot more time to dive into some of the things that you shared and get more of your stories out there, Alan. That's a good show. It is. So- Alan, I know you do a lot of keynote speaking. Obviously, you're working to help a lot of organizations out there advance and move on and tackle all kinds of things. I enjoy the content you put out as well. How can folks connect with you, Alan, and the Connexus team? Well, I'm on LinkedIn, so I think I'm the only Alan Chuck with (laughs) A-L-L-E-N. Okay. So, yeah, feel free to contact me or ajockconnexus.com. Wonderful. And we'll make sure we include those notes in the show notes so mm-hmm. we'll make it easier for our listeners to connect with Alan and the Connexus team. All right. So, Kevin, yeah. before we wrap here today, we got to touch on our friends at Microsoft. They're doing <laughs> some pretty cool things out in industry, including pharma and life sciences. Is that right, Kevin? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We touched on how technology is, is changing pharma. Well, actually, it's changing every industry. But in pharma specifically, is accelerating scientific innovation. By modernizing discovery and manufacturing, we actually drive advancements faster. Technology helps to create value-driven care. Those measurements by rapidly modeling new product development and reducing cost. And we talked about that with respect to modeling the molecules that create new product. But it's also important to enhance the workforce experience. We talked a bit about how communications is important, right? So technology helps to enhance the experience of the healthcare team. This optimizes digital operations by connecting people, data, devices, and processes in order to overcome skill gaps and improve communication and digitize these workflows. That increases productivity and it makes us healthier. And finally, they're using this technology, visual technology, for instance, to provide illustrative depiction of experiences. This really helps to build operational agility. It spurs life science innovation without sacrificing compliance. It allows organizations to actually iterate faster and actually fail faster, which is good for all of us. And this, in turn, increases the manufacturing productivity to reduce time to market for these life-saving drugs. So technology is integral to the pharmaceutical industry and making our lives healthier. That's right. This is the way 
Indeed, this is the way. And let me just say, Alan and Kevin, I got to say this word molecules. So I haven't said that since ninth grade biology class. So I had to get that in here at the end. All right, really quick, Kevin, how can folks connect with you, all the cool things you're up to, including our Digital Transformers series? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Digital Transformers, always, flychainnow.com or wherever you get your podcast. But you can reach out to me on LinkedIn or X at Kevin underscore Jacks. I'm always there. Always, always on, always making it happen, just like Alan. Big thanks to Alan Jacques with Canaxis. Alan, always a pleasure to reconnect with you, and I really appreciate the stories, perspective, expertise related to you know kind of global business, but especially pharmaceutical industry here today, yeah. Alan. Thank you. I love these sessions, Scott. Thank you so much for inviting me. And next time, I'll tell you a story about a Chinese hamster <laughs> and how it became the backbone of the biotech industry. Oh, wow. Okay, man. Okay, I'm going to hold you to that, Alan. <laughs> I'm going to hold you to it. Well, always a pleasure to reconnect. We'll get that story next time. Big thanks, of course, to our collaborative partners over at Microsoft as well, helping us to bring these incredible stories and conversations featuring leaders like this out to our global audience. Big thanks there. Kevin Always a pleasure to knock out these episodes with you. Yeah, I learn every time. I mean, the guests bring so much vision and so much information. And I'm dying to learn more about the Chinese hamster. Did it speak Mandarin? <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out. And maybe we'll have a pickup basketball game too. Who knows? But yes. hey. To our listeners out there, hopefully you've enjoyed this fun episode as much as we have. But hey, the onus is on you to take one thing, take one thing Alan dropped here or Kevin dropped here and put it into action, right? Deeds, not words. That's the name of the game, right? So whatever you do, though, with that said, on behalf of our entire team here at Supply Chain Now, Scott Luton challenging you to do good, to give forward, and to be the change. We'll see you next time right back here at Supply Chain Now. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for being a part of our Supply Chain Now community. Check out all of our programming at SupplyChainNow.com and make sure you subscribe to Supply Chain Now anywhere you listen to podcasts. And follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. See you next time on Supply Chain Now. Supply Chain Now.